This episode of Rewrites is supported by Audible with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash rewrites. Storyplant Media presents Tony O'Dell's Rewrites. Episode 1. You want to make a show about writers? Once upon a time. How many stories have begun that way? And no matter how many times we hear those words, they fill us with anticipation. That's I think that's because once upon a time is a promise. A promise will be transported from our own lives into someone else's, where we'll be entertained, enlightened, moved to tears or anger, laugh out loud, fall in love, learn something we probably already knew, but had forgotten during the daily grind of our real lives. When people started writing down opening lines, they became more intriguing and the promises became bigger. There once was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. (laughs) Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I am an invisible man. Who doesn't want to find out what happens next after reading those words? I was stressed out over trying to come up with a great opening line for my own story, and then I remembered I'm telling it. I'm not writing it, so... Once upon a time, we'll do fine. Once upon a time, there was a guy named Theo, that's me, who loved books and reading and believed the decline of the written word would bring about the end of civilization as we know it. And he had good reason to worry. People no longer seem to appreciate the incredible gift of written language humans possess. Some seem to actively want to get rid of it altogether. OMG! WTF, SMH, LOL. People wanted flashing, violent images. They wanted noise, confrontation, chaos. In short, they wanted this. Reality TV. I don't watch those shows. But there's no denying their popularity, and I began to wonder if there was a way to use reality TV to help convince people to read more. I was thinking about it one day at the same time I was thinking about um, this cheesy broccoli casserole my mom used to make when my brother Milo and I were kids. We hated broccoli, while our mom was convinced if it was missing from our diet, our growth would be stunted and our hair would fall out. So she devised a way to conceal the offending vegetable by steaming it, then covering it in an envelope of instant onion soup, a stick of butter, lemon juice, and a ton of cheddar, and then baking it until the cheese and butter melted and got all salty and oniony. And <laughs> it was fantastic. So why couldn't I use the same devious technique? The reality TV show format would be the buttery, cheesy, fattening, high-sodium topping that you can't resist and isn't good for you, and I, I will be the broccoli. Together, America will consume us, and while enjoying the experience, they will unwittingly, in spite of themselves, benefit from my message. This 
was the birth of rewrites. I had no money, no connections, no experience, and I wanted to make a TV show. <laughs> strike that, strike that. I did have a connection. A very, very tenuous connection to the world of television. A friend of a friend's roommate's sister's boyfriend knew a guy who knew a guy who knew the assistant to the assistant to a producer's assistant, and then he was able to get me five minutes to pitch the producer while he ate breakfast if I could be in L.A. the following Tuesday at 9 a.m. I scraped together the money for a round-trip plane ticket and met the man on the veranda of the cleanest, brightest, shiniest restaurant I had ever seen, filled with the cleanest, brightest, shiniest people that I'd ever seen. I always have a book with me. That day, it was a confederacy of dunces, which proved to be prophetic. You want to do a show about writers? You don't don't have to say it like that. Say what? Like what? You said the word writers like they're repulsive. Right. Although it's not always the actual writers that are repulsive, just the uh, the idea of them. That that was a terrible thing to say. Oh, should I go on? I'm staying through the omelet. Okay, so the show would be a competition reality show. Uh, something along the lines of America's Next Top Model or Chopped. You want to do a show about writers? Why not? Uh, any profession can be made into a reality show, right? There's, there's even a show about exterminators. Well, exterminators are interesting. Writers are interesting. Name one interesting writer. Living? I don't suppose you're planning on putting any dead writers on your show? Although, yeah, that idea might fly. Zombies are very hot right now. Wasn't there a movie about dead writers once? Dead Writers Club or uh, something like that. Oh, are are you referring to uh, Dead Poet Society? Because it wasn't about dead writers. It was about an inspirational teacher at a boys' boarding school. Still waiting for that interesting writer example. Okay, okay. Um, What about Cormac McCarthy? Here's a guy who's been highly lauded, but toiling for years in commercial obscurity, You're really. You're putting me to sleep. What is the format? The writers would have weekly challenges. Boring. What else? You, you got me off. I didn't even... Okay, uh, okay. So the writers would also be judged on the weekly progress that they're making on their novels. <laughs> Again, you're losing me. Why are they writing novels in the first place? Why don't they bypass the whole book thing and write a script? Well, sometimes writers just have more to say than they can fit into 120 pages of dialogue and stage direction. Don't be ridiculous. 100 pages tops. I'm sure the writers think they have more to say. That's because they pick the wrong things to write about. You can't you can't tell writers what they should write about. That that goes completely contrary to the creative process altogether. I mean, sometimes a writer's just got to write a book about a whale, you know? Jaws was a book. Well, yeah, actually, Jaws was a book. Um, it has nothing to do with what I just said. I'm talking about a whale, not a shark. Same thing. No, they're not. What's the word you writers like? Metaphorically. Metaphorically, they're the same thing. No. What? They're not. They're... Look, I was referring to Moby Dick. Moby Dick was a movie? Yeah, it was. It's been made into many movies, but probably the best known is the John Huston film starring Gregory Peck. But again, that's beside the point. Um, I was talking about the book. And I was saying that if someone had told Melville not to write Moby Dick because writing about a whale was stupid, then we would be robbed of one of the world's greatest novels. I, you've read it. Definitely not. Or Jaws, either. You sure that was a book? Yep, yep, that was a big bestseller. Peter Benchley. Gregory Peck was in that other famous movie based on a book. 
To Kill a Mockingbird? No, uh, The Omen. The Omen was an original screenplay. Then I'm thinking of that other horror movie based on a book. The Exorcist? Rosemary's Baby? The Shining? Casablanca. That's not a horror film, and it's not based on a book, and Gregory Peck also was not in it. You've got one more minute. Okay, okay, uh... The competition will start out with six writers, and they'll all live in a house together. (laughs) You want to put six writers together in a house? (laughs) No, no, it can't be done. It is literally done all the time. Have you ever heard of a writer's retreat? Will the writers be attractive? I don't know. I don't think any of the exterminators are attractive. I'm pretty sure one is. Okay, then one of the writers can be attractive. How about this? We could put all the writers in an office instead of a house and assign them the same idea to see which one of them comes up with the best screenplay. Mm, Novels. We're talking about novels. They would write novels. And again, I have a serious problem with telling a writer what to write. Who are we to judge an idea? In the hands of a master storyteller, any subject, any subject can be made riveting. Look at Steinbeck's masterpiece and its simplicity. A man driven from his home by hardship on an apocalyptic level and the almost insurmountable obstacles he encounters on his journey looking for a new and better life. Mad Max was a book. What? Here we go, your usual, sir. One egg white and kale confetti omelet cooked without butter, oil, or salt. You don't have any interest in my show, and I'm leaving. And by the way, that, that whatever you just ordered, that is not breakfast. That is not sustenance. That, to me, is a thin, tasteless creation that cannot possibly provide any pleasure or satisfaction. The CBS phone lineup was an omelet? Oh. Hey, kid. My name is Theo. Kid, I don't know or care what the hell you're talking about, but you do, and that's rare in TV. I've got an eight-week slot to fill starting in two months. Give me eight episodes, and we'll see what happens. Hi, I'm Tony O'Dell, the author of Rewrites. If you love books as much as Theo and I do, then you need to check out Audible. Audible has an unmatched selection of audio novels and nonfiction, as well as original shows, news, comedy, and much more, provided by leading publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazines, and newspapers. The choices on Audible are vast, but in my opinion, the best place to start is with the six Tony O'Dell novels available from Audible, including my New York Times bestseller, Backroads. With Audible, you never have to be without a book, which, as you've discovered while listening to rewrites, is an idea Theo would strongly support. With Audible, it's even possible to switch between reading a book on your Kindle, listening to it on your Echo, or listening to it through the Audible app without ever losing your place or missing a word. Rewrites listeners can get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com rewrites. Your free audiobook can be any title you'd like, though, again, those Tony O'Dell novels are a great place to start. So go to audible.com rewrites and browse the tremendous selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening now. Or, wait, finish listening to this episode of Rewrites first. I returned from my foray to L.A. triumphant, but mentally battle-scarred. The experience made me realize I was going to have to develop a tougher skin if I was going to succeed. But it also made me even more determined to accomplish my mission. That guy knew absolutely nothing about books. 
Nothing! How could this be? I guess this might be a good place to pause and point out that I wasn't trying to make rewrites entirely on my own. I had the help of two very important people in my life. My little brother, Milo. Hey! Hey, what are you doing here? You were talking about me. That doesn't mean you need to be here. Hear that, disagree. Milo's a senior at Columbia, a biomedical engineering major who aced his SATs twice. He took him a second time just to see if he could do it again. Didn't want anyone walking around saying the first time was luck. He got into MIT and Stanford, but never had any intention of going to either because he never wants to leave New York. (laughs) Would you ask a marmot to live in a (laughs) fishbowl? Milo will eventually cure cancer or make some unbelievably amazing contribution to mankind. Yeah, probably. He's a genius, but one of the best things about him is you never know it when you meet him. He doesn't flaunt his intellect. On the contrary, he usually sounds really stupid. I'm kind of like the opposite of you, a guy who has no intellect but sounds really smart. Okay, get out of my story. You can come back again later. Wait, you owe me 20 bucks. No, I do not. Yes, you do. No, get out. Then there's Clive. Clive's been my best friend ever since I literally ran into him in Washington Square Park where he was trying to make a few bucks around the holidays playing a brilliant jazz rendition of Frosty the Snowman. And I was trying to avoid a particularly aggressive squirrel. Um, Long story short, it turned out we were both freshmen at NYU. Clive and I may have different approaches to life, but we share the same goals. I tend to overthink. Well... Maybe it's not overthink. I don't know. I don't know if it's even possible to think too much. Maybe it's more accurate to say I rethink too much, not overthink. Clive doesn't seem to think at all. (laughs) I don't mean he's stupid or he makes bad decisions. It's that he sees a situation and reacts without seeming to think. I guess that would be called underthinking. Uh, For example, we went to this party in the East Village not long after we met, hosted by a couple of film students. And there were these two girls. Well, one in particular that I really wanted to meet, but I was having trouble coming up with the right approach. I could tell her I'm majoring in Russian literature, but sometimes I, just, I feel like that sounds so violent. It's not like French literature that makes women think about croissants and scarves. I could try and impress her with my knowledge of the East Village, but then she might know about the East Village just as much as I do. I wish I knew more about Brooklyn. I should know more about Brooklyn. I know enough to get by, but not enough to really, like, impress anyone. You know, hey, where are you going? Where are you going? No, no, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Hi, I'm Clive. This is Theo. We're heterosexuals. Well, hello. Hi there. A few weeks had passed since my meeting with the producer, and we hadn't been able to find a single investor. We... We pitched our project to every individual, business, and organization we could think of who might be interested. I don't want to give the impression that I was ready to give up, but things were looking pretty hopeless. One of Clive's favorite sayings is, You never know what's going to happen. I have always considered this to be one of the stupidest things I've ever heard and a stellar example of the art of underthinking. But I was about to experience the true meaning behind it and all its glorious implications. A little bit of background is necessary before I go on. I majored in anthropology and world literature in college. 
I chose these concentrations because I wanted to study mankind, and I obviously never wanted to be able to make a living. I then took my degree and ended up doing the obvious, selling women's shoes at Bergdorf's. A friend of my mom's was a buyer there and got me the job. It pays the bills. Actually, it doesn't come anywhere near paying the bills, but on this particular day, it was going to turn out to be the most important job of my life. As I was leaving work, I happened to glance over at the jewelry section and saw a man <laughs> and a monkey. This alone would be startling because, to my knowledge, monkeys weren't allowed in Bergdorf's, unless possibly as like an emotional support animal, but this wasn't just any monkey. She wore a tiny bedazzled leather jacket and matching cap and was cradled in the man's one arm while he read quietly to her from a novel he held in his other hand. Uh, he was slight, expensively dressed, and wore glasses with bright yellow frames. The saleswoman behind the counter was wrapping a box for them, and she didn't seem to think there was anything strange about the scene. I'm a New Yorker. I'm programmed to never show outward interest in anything. But I couldn't help myself. I approached them. No autographs. Please respect her privacy. Who? The monkey? Is she famous? Her last five movies grossed over a billion dollars. You tell me if she's famous. Oh, wonderful. See what you've started? Here comes someone else. Excuse me? No autographs. Please respect her privacy. Oh, I don't want to bother her. I just wanted to tell her I thought she was so amazing in the night of the museum. She knows. I'm, I'm sorry. I just, sorry about that. I didn't mean to cause problems. Oh, hey, she took my book. Does she read? She's a monkey. I read to her. And she's crazy about audiobooks. <laughs> oh, what's this? Life of Pi. Oh, girl. You're not going to like the tiger. <laughs> oh, uh, what, what is she doing? Oh, she wants to touch your face. It means she likes you, and she's rarely wrong about people. Unfortunately, the same isn't true when it comes to other animals. She befriended this fox terrier on her last series who only used her to get him into the right parties. And then he repaid her by peeing all over P. Diddy's yacht. <laughs> Oh, I know. I know. No, no, no. He broke your heart. Now, I'm sorry. You'll have to excuse us. We have an appointment. Now give him back his book. No, that's okay. She can keep it. Well, that's very kind of you. I'm Tim, by the way. And this is Crystal. Hi, I'm Theo. Nice to meet you, Crystal. Both of you. <laughs> Likewise. Have a nice day. Um, I hope I'm not being presumptuous, but I'm producing a reality TV show about writers, specifically novelists. Really? Yeah, uh, I'll be honest. We're having a hard time raising the capital. Really? You're the first person I've ever met in show business who needed money. Uh, sorry. Never mind. I just... I just thought you might want to hear about it. Uh, I'll tell you what. We're staying at Crystal's house in the Hamptons. We're leaving for the coast tomorrow, but if you can come by in the morning, perhaps we, yes, we could, perhaps we could discuss it. Yeah? That'd be great. Uh, uh, oh, hey, what's she doing now? Oh, she wants to fist bump. She thinks she's street. <laughs>
you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> when I told Clive I had met a rich, famous monkey reading a book at the jewelry counter at Bergdorf's who might give us money for our show, I expected him to throw those words in my face, but he didn't even look surprised and only asked me what she was reading. The next day, I met with Crystal and Tim at her lavish mansion in the Hamptons. Crystal wore a pink velour tracksuit and smoked a cigarette. <laughs> I decided not to ask about it. I didn't want to make waves, but when she blew smoke in my face, I couldn't help coughing, and Tim offered up an explanation. <coughs> oh, <coughs> she picked up the habit filming the hangover part, too. <coughs> She's tried the gum and the patch. We even tried hypnosis. That was a nightmare. Something went wrong, and any time I'd say the word eat, she'd break into show tunes. Have you ever heard a monkey try to imitate Patty Lupone? I mean, she got the gestures down, but the voice. <laughs> oh, enough! Don't start blowing smoke at me. <laughs> then we said to hell with it. She likes to smoke. What am I going to do? She's a monkey. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that is not your concern. Where were we? Ah, yes. She is all over your show. How much money do you need? Total. Honey, she doesn't get out of bed in the morning for less than 12 grand. She'd be happy to fund your little show. There's only one string attached. I see. What's that? She wants to be a judge. Ah. <laughs> uh... Uh, I, uh, uh, I don't know what to say. Uh, how? How can a monkey be a judge? Have you ever watched America's Got Talent? Well, our format is to have two permanent judges and a different guest judge every week. How about that? She could be a guest judge. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, don't be so melodramatic. It's far less of a time commitment, and you know you have to start preparing for your next film. <laughs> She's playing a monkey. You wouldn't think it'd be that difficult. I struggled with the idea of using monkey money to help spread awareness about the written word. But when I thought about how many humans with the capability of reading choose not to do it, I decided it made perfect sense. There was a lot of work ahead. Putting together the production crew, scripting the shows, finding a writer's house, finding studio space, lining up celebrity authors to be judges, and we also had to find the writers to be on the show. I thought that would be the easy part. Only unpublished novelists could apply. Potential contestants were invited to submit their work online, along with a bio and photo, and also compete in some writing challenges, similar to what we might be doing on the show. We heard from hundreds of people. The submissions ranged from bad to disturbing to to WTF. Okay, writers, listen up. Uh, in 50 words or less, write a segue between these two situations. Joe has a pizza delivered to his house. Joe is found dead. Writer number one, Joe has a pizza delivered to his house. Go. In the grand scope of what life was about, the end of Joe's life had little bearing on anything Linda was planning to do on that beautiful summer day, with the sky the color of a robin's egg, and with her hair the color 
of Golden Hay. Writer number two, Joe has a pizza delivered to his house. Joe ordered extra cheese, even though he didn't like cheese that much. But the pizza place used too much sauce, and the extra cheese balanced it out. (sighs) Writer number three, Joe has a pizza delivered to his house. Pizza! Joe screamed pervasively. He loved pizza thickly. It was ridiculously oblivious. He was going to choke on it and die handily. Writer number four. Joe has a pizza delivered to his house. The Duke of Ellerby smoothed down his velvet waistcoat before entering the ballroom. The sea of party guests parted as he glided through them, searching for the forbidden love of his life, Lady Rowena. Writer number five. Joe has a pizza delivered to his house. Joe opened the pizza box and, like, an alien jumped out and, like, attached itself to his face like the alien did in the movie Alien, and it killed him. It was painful wading through the bad writing, but worth it in the end. We found four gems buried in the rock pile. Before we offered them places on the show, I felt we needed to meet them face to face and see where and how they lived. We were investing a lot in these people, and they were also going to have to be able to get along with each other. Clive agreed by pointing out that the average psycho is pretty good at seeming fairly normal online. So we hit the road. Our first stop was West Virginia to meet Bill Graham, a retired coal miner and Vietnam veteran. The town ain't much to look at these days. A lot of stores closed, businesses gone under. But there is a time when it was lively. Seems all we can support now is a church and a bar. Need the first to get into the next life and the second to survive this one. Here it is, just like I told you. Boarded up windows and all. The public library. Closed due to lack of funding. We're sorry, Mr. Graham. Please, call me Bill. Don't be sorry for me. Be sorry for you. You're looking at your future. My life's almost over. If someone had told me when I was a boy someday we wouldn't have libraries, I'd have knocked him out cold. That would have been an insult to my country. No different than saying we didn't have the guts to fight Hitler or or weren't smart enough to put a man on the moon first. America without libraries, shut your mouth, son. This is not some third world nation. Although looking around here now, you might think so. My mother used to bring me and my siblings here once a month. We waited for that day like it was Christmas. <laughs> and why not? A book is a gift. The gift of other people's lives. I learned something every time I read one. One of the worst things about the war, aside from the war itself, was not having no books to read. Ended up the only way to get my hands on one was to get shot. Turned out the VA had a book cart. You boys look cold. Why don't we go across the street and get something to warm us up? Here, Ned. This here is Thale and Clive. Can you set us up with a couple of beers and whiskey chasers? 
Sure thing. Oh, thanks, but that's really not necessary. It's kind of early for me. Man up. What's that book you got there, Theo? How Green Was My Valley. Wasn't that a movie? It was, uh, yes, actually. Made into a movie. It was a book first, you illiterate jackass. <laughs> <laughs> what What else can I tell you about myself? Um, my mom named me after the preacher, Billy Graham, but wanted me to have my own identity, so she purposely misspelled my name, Bill, with a Y. Never given me much trouble, except for a couple of smartasses in basic training who took to calling me bile. I put an end to that right quick. Like I said, I had a bit of a temper. Been married huh, three times. Not currently. One child, a girl, Rebecca Fay. She was born right before I left for Nam. I was messed up when I got back and lost both of them. I don't know where they went, but they could always find me easy enough if they wanted to. I still think about her, Becky. I started writing when I turned 70. Don't know why. Welcome to Rewrites, Bill. I sure do appreciate the opportunity. Once upon a time, there was a guy named Theo who hopes you're enjoying his story, the story of rewrites. He hopes you'll be back. He's going to leave you now with a reading from Bill's novel, Coal Run, because, after all, it is all about the words. I'm dragging Mike through the jungle. Trying not to listen to the gurgle coming from the hole in his neck, and I'm thinking about back home. How we'd trudge off to work carrying our lunch pails with our extra sandwiches inside in case they was a cave-in and we got buried alive and got hungry waiting for the rescue team. Or Jesus, whoever got to us first. I kept thinking to myself, I was used to having a tough job and this is my job now, to defend America, except it's not that different here than back home. It's a quiet place with lots of hills and quiet people who just want to grow their rice and trade their chickens and be left alone. What exactly am I protecting America from? Tired farmers? Grandma's tough as jerky? Little kids with their arms blown off? When you look into their eyes, you don't see anything bad there except the reflection of us. For a complete list of cast and crew and a free download of our theme song, Between the Lines, visit our website, rewritespodcast.com. <laughs>